Okay, it has been an intense week. I was on vacation this last week. This is the first vacation I've taken in quite some time with my family. It's been at least a year. Can't recall the last one, I think. But anyway, I was on vacation and attempting to be a good father and good husband, not paying too much attention to social media. But I did happen to catch at one point that Glenn Greenwald and Reza Aslan and Ezra Klein had all attacked me in the span of an hour on Twitter. And genius that I am, I felt that I needed to respond right then and there. I think the lesson of this whole episode is don't rush to make things worse. That is a lesson I will try to fully absorb going forward. And frankly, I think I need to rethink my relationship to social media. There are so many problems that need not be created that are pure confections of having said something or noticed what somebody said on social media. So I'll be rethinking my relationship to all that. To bring you all up to date, I know that many of you have noticed what happened to me in the last week, but I just want to give you my picture of it and then tell you what's happening going forward. Almost exactly a year ago, I had Charles Murray on my podcast. And Murray, as most of you know, is the author of the notorious book, The Bell Curve, which, while it was not focused on differences between races in any significant sense, there was a chapter on race and IQ in that book. But the book was devoted to just the cognitive stratification of society having nothing to do with race. Anyway, that chapter on race and the negative response it received fully engulfed Murray's life. This is in the mid-90s. And Murray is still someone who gets protested when he goes to a college campus to give a talk about something that is totally unrelated to that book. And while I have very little interest in IQ and zero interest in racial differences in IQ, I invited Murray on my podcast because I am deeply interested in free speech and in not letting moral panics get out of hand. And what had happened is Murray had been invited to give a talk at Middlebury College, and he was deplatformed in a fairly spectacular way by an angry mob of students. And as he and his host were leaving the auditorium, they were physically assaulted. And ironically, his host was a very liberal professor who was planning to debate him, essentially. She had a list of hard questions she wanted to ask Murray. Anyway, she received a concussion and a neck injury, and I believe she still suffers from the results of that. So this was a big deal. And it appeared to be the worst example of this spreading moral panic on college campuses, where conservative speakers, or even those who are just imagined to be conservative, are getting deplatformed. And the fact that this is happening at colleges, where the free exchange of ideas is the whole point of the institution, that is something that many of us are quite worried about and are appropriately focused on. Now, there are people who consider all of these examples of moral panic on college campuses, Middlebury and Yale and Portland and Berkeley and Evergreen, many people consider these outliers that signify absolutely nothing. And there are some poll results that suggest that attitudes toward free speech haven't changed the way many fear. So whether there really is a moral panic on college campuses can be disputed, I think. 
I know Jonathan Haidt, who's been on this podcast, thinks the panic is real, and he's writing a response to a recent Vox article that suggests that it wasn't. But in any case, people can debate the state of the panic. All I can say is that there certainly seemed to be one at the time I invited Murray on the podcast. And the thing that made me most committed to speaking with him was the realization that I had been part of his shunning. As I say in that podcast, I had avoided him and even avoided his book for decades because I believed that where there was that much smoke, there must be fire. Right, so I felt morally culpable for this. So I had this podcast conversation with him. And of necessity, in order to defend him against the charge of racism, and in order to show how unfairly he had been treated for decades, our conversation had to present some of the scientific justification for his claims. So we spoke about the current picture of IQ data. We talked about the way genes and environment likely contribute to intelligence and any other human trait. We got into the weeds somewhat. But again, this is driven not by my interest in IQ, much less racial differences in IQ. It was born of my trying to write a very clear intellectual and moral wrong. And then in the aftermath of that podcast, Ezra Klein, who was the editor-in-chief of Vox, he was at the time, now he's editor-at-large, he published a paper that was highly critical of both Murray and me. The article was written by Eric Turkheimer, Catherine Harden, and Richard Nisbet, who are all real scientists. And because Nisbet is the most famous of them and because he's been grinding this axe over IQ for several decades now, I've tended to refer to this as the Nisbet paper. But Turkheimer appears to be the first author on it. So Klein published this piece, and I'm assuming he published it because he thought it was a fair and accurate and important critique of the conversation I had with Murray. But it wasn't. So I contacted Klein by email. This first probably happened on Twitter, but then we moved to email. And I expressed how unfair and inaccurate I thought the piece was. And there was some talk of us doing a podcast together to hash this out. But then I got so exasperated in this email exchange with him that I pulled the plug on that idea. I decided there was no way I could talk to this guy. There was just so much evidence of bad faith on his side. And as my friend Brett Weinstein says, bad faith changes everything. And it really does. Either someone is going to reason honestly about the plain meaning of words and about facts as we know them, or they will try to smear you with anything they can use, however dishonest. right? And that's what I feel Klein was up to. And so I pulled the plug on the podcast idea because I thought it would be an excruciating waste of time. Be like the podcast that I have ironically titled The Best Podcast Ever with Omar Aziz. So let me just be clear about what I think happened here. The Nisbet article was truly dishonest and actually slanderous. It put the onus on Murray and me to prove that we're not Nazis. And if you don't think it did that, you're not reading closely enough. It contained highly charged and highly moralistic accusations. Okay? It accused us of the most egregious intellectual misconduct. On Nisbet's account, we were guilty of purveying racialist pseudoscience. Okay? And that's everyone reads racialist as racist. 
Okay, and if they were trying to split the difference there, their true intentions were revealed in many of the other things they said. Okay, we were part of this horrific legacy of bigotry, and everything we said justified bigotry. Klein called my podcast with Murray disastrous on Twitter. I had titled it Forbidden Knowledge, right? And he said, it's not forbidden knowledge, it's America's most ancient justification for bigotry and racial inequality. This is what he said in his most recent piece. So, these are serious accusations, and they're actually false. This is not good faith criticism that I was complaining about. These are the kinds of blows that, if they land, can and should destroy a person's reputation. They're intended to destroy a person's reputation. The reality of the situation is there's the scientific data on IQ and race and genetics and environment and all the related issues. And there can be a good faith debate about these data. And there can be a good faith debate about the social policies that one would want to enact to respond to whatever the facts are, so as to most help everyone, right? How can we do good in the world? Honest debates to be had on those questions. But the criticism of me and Murray was not an example of honest debate. It presented a very skewed and ideological view of the science, and it branded Murray's account of the science as junk science and racialist pseudoscience, whereas his account of the science is actually mainstream. I'm talking about his account of the data. I'm not talking about his views on affirmative action or what should be done in the world. All of that can be debated too. You can debate both sides of the affirmative action question being fully committed to equality and without a racist bone in your body. But now I'm just talking about the scientific picture. And I should note that just yesterday, the first author on this paper, Eric Turkheimer, apologized for calling me and Murray peddlers of junk science. He admitted that was an empty insult. It turns out it's just science, right? This is a disagreement about how to interpret data, and it could have been a good faith disagreement. But the truth is, and this is my honest take on the scientific field at the moment, the truth is, is that if there is a fringe here, Nisbet and Turkheimer and Hardin are on it for patently ideological reasons. Now, of course, it is understandable that they are worried about racism. We all should be worried about racism. We should all be committed to political and economic equality. We want everyone to have as much opportunity as they can have. That is all understandable. But distorting and cherry-picking the science and slandering anyone who won't succumb to your level of confirmation bias as a racist is totally unethical. That's not good-faith criticism. This is one side of a scientific debate smearing the other side with the most toxic moral and intellectual aspersions possible. These are reputation-destroying slanders. So, when I wrote Klein, and I found him to be totally evasive, I got fairly pissed. One especially unethical thing he did, after sliming us with this piece, Klein refused to publish a far more mainstream and balanced defense of us, 
that was submitted by Richard Hare, who's the editor-in-chief of the journal Intelligence, and he's the author of a recent book, The Neurobiology of Intelligence. Hare came to our defense totally unbidden by me, or Murray, and with a far more mainstream opinion, and Klein refused to publish it, and he has continued to publish attacks on Murray and me in Vox. So, when our email exchange unraveled, I told him that if he continued to slander me, and in particular if he misrepresented the reasons why I declined to do a podcast with him, I would publish that exchange, because I thought the world should know how he operates as a journalist and an editor. The world should know how dishonest he was being, and how he wasn't even slightly committed to offering a fair representation of both sides of this debate. Then I think basically a year passed, certainly without me noticing anything from Klein on this topic. Whether or not he actually made any noise on it, I don't know. But then there was a New York Times op-ed by the Harvard geneticist David Reich, which made some statements similar to the ones that had gotten Murray and me into hot water. And Murray retweeted it, and then I retweeted it with a jab at Klein. I said, you know, I sure hope Ezra Klein's on the case. Racialist pseudoscience never sleeps. It was a totally snide comment, of course, but totally fair given what he has done. It is just obvious that David Reich is not a racist. And the points he was making could be easily spun the way mine and Murray's have been spun. And he was definitely saying some of the same things about genetics and population differences that could have gotten him slimed. And then Klein responded with yet another article attacking me and Murray. And crucially, he discussed the email exchange I had with him and my refusal to do a podcast with him in ways that I found to be totally self-serving and misleading. So this prompted me to publish our email exchange. Now, as it turns out, that was a mistake. That was a serious miscalculation on my part. Because if you just read the emails, apparently I looked terrible. I seemed inexplicably angry. I assumed bad intent on Klein's part for reasons that were not clear to readers. Klein seemed friendly and open to dialogue, and I just seemed pissed. And the fact that I published a private correspondence seemed unethical. But if you had listened to my podcast with Murray, and you read the Vox article, to which my emails were a reaction, then most people understood my anger and saw Klein's evasiveness for what it was. And when you saw that he had mischaracterized the contents of our email exchange, you thought that my publishing those emails was fair game. Now, that's obviously the view I took, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. But let me be the first to admit it was a colossal mistake given that I was asking way too much of readers. The problem was it took a lot more work to be in the second camp and understand what was actually going on here. I was relying on people to have listened to a two-hour podcast and to have read the original Vox article. Of course, many people didn't do either of those things. In particular, it seems that my declining to do a podcast with Klein was widely interpreted as my avoiding a hard conversation and just failing outright to deal with serious criticism. Needless to say, I didn't see it that way, and I don't see it that way. But in the aftermath of all this, I became very uncomfortable with that perception. 
So I put it to a vote on social media, Twitter and Facebook, and 76% of people on both platforms claim to want to hear a podcast with the two of us. So I've changed my mind. And I'm now going to do a podcast with Klein. And we will record that in a few days. And we will release it jointly on our podcast. I won't insist upon any ground rules apart from it being unedited. And I don't know whether this will be a productive conversation or not. There's certainly a danger that it could be my next best podcast ever. Because, again, I detected an extraordinary amount of bad faith on Klein's side. Some of you think I'm hallucinating this. I really don't think so. But I am committed to rebooting my brain here and entering this conversation with an open mind. And I will deal with Klein as he comes. And if it runs off the rails, at least I'll be able to say I tried. Now, in the meantime, a few things have happened. Andrew Sullivan wrote a great piece defending me and Murray. He might have said one thing there that was slightly misleading about population differences, but other people can discuss that. Anyway, his intervention there was much appreciated. And now, as you might predict, he's being called a racist. Steve Pinker said something very nice about me on Twitter in my defense. That shouldn't have been necessary, but given what is happening, it actually really matters that he did that. And he was taking his own reputational risk in doing that. Again, those of you who think that this might be a matter of me being thin-skinned and intolerant of criticism have lost the plot. What is being attempted here is a wholesale destruction of my reputation. At minimum, people are trying to make me the next Charles Murray. If you think of how Murray has had to function over the last 25 years, if you think of the fact that he still gets protested when he goes to a college campus, okay, when you think of all of the collaborations with him that haven't happened as a result of him being perceived as radioactive, he has paid an extraordinary price. And everyone who has ever hated something I've said and sought to vilify me is now piling on here. Glenn Greenwald, Reza Aslan. I mean, I have no idea what most people are doing, but I see the echoes of this. People are sending me emails. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Right? I mean, emails I've never received before, even after the Ben Affleck thing. It is a full court press here. I noticed Majid pushback against a New York Times writer who I'd never heard of, whose name now escapes me, but he was dancing on my grave over this thing, saying, I can't believe it's taken this long for Sam Harris to suddenly become disreputable or something like that. And he was clearly concerned about everything I'd ever said about Islam, clearly didn't understand anything I'd ever said about Islam, clearly doesn't understand my moral concern for Muslim freethinkers and women and gays and apostates, doesn't understand anything. But he was dancing on my grave on social media in front of some hundred thousand followers, and Majid pushed back against that. Again, much appreciated. It really is not good to defend oneself in circumstances like this. I mean, I can hear it in my voice now. This is just fucking tiresome. The fact that I'm inflicting this on you is tiresome. But I just feel a need to set the record straight here and then announce this upcoming podcast with Ezra Klein.
The other thing that happened, as I said, is that Eric Turkheimer, the lead author on the Vox paper, has apologized for calling Murray and me peddlers of junk science. Once you consider the rest of what he wrote in that paper, in light of that admission, putting the onus on us to prove that we're not Nazis doesn't make a lot of sense if we were discussing real science. And again, if you don't think they did that, you were not reading closely enough. And to reiterate something I've said a dozen times, to no apparent effect, I did not have Murray on my podcast because I'm interested in racial differences, whether they're genetic or environmental. And I have actually criticized anyone who is especially interested in racial differences. And I push back against Murray on this point in the podcast. Why pay attention to any of this? I'm now convinced that much of the attention Murray has paid to this in the years going forward, from the initial controversy around his book in 1994, is just that you have to be paying attention to this in order to defend yourself against charges of racism. I, mean, I don't want to say another word about IQ and race for the rest of my life, I can assure you. But now I'm doing this podcast, and I'm going to be doing a podcast with Ezra Klein to take his foot out of my mouth. I mean, that's what's so asymmetrical about this situation. In order to prove you're not a racist here, you have to prove that you have made a good faith interpretation of the science. And then you're talking about what he calls racialist science or race science. And you are one of these toxic people who is guilty of even paying attention to this stuff. This is a no-win situation. But I have criticized anyone who would go looking for these differences because I want to live in a post-racial society where we can forget about race entirely. That's the world I want to live in. And my criticism of identity politics is born of this same conviction. I believe that identity politics is a moral and intellectual and political dead end. I think we have to get past that sort of tribalism. And I have not denied the reality of white privilege. So I had Murray on the podcast because I felt I was seeing an honest scholar being pilloried and shunned for decades. And as I said, I was part of that shunning. And I felt guilty about that. And I had heard at that point from many prominent scientists who fully agreed that Murray had been treated despicably, but who didn't have the courage to say so publicly. And that bothered me. Literally every scientist I spoke with before my podcast with Murray felt that a grave injustice had been done in his case. So I had him on the podcast. And as I said, in order to demonstrate that he's not a malicious charlatan and racist, I had to run through the science to some degree. Again, the science that Klein calls race science or racialist pseudoscience, the science that he says is America's most ancient justification for bigotry and racial inequality, the science that Turkheimer called junk science but now admits wasn't junk science. This really is a no-win situation to talk about this stuff. Because it's simply a fact that defending the claims that Murray made sounds racist to many, many people. And it sounds, above all, that one cares about racial differences, which I don't. But here's the big picture, which I'm sure I'll reiterate when I do my podcast with Klein. Virtually everything about us is largely governed by our genes and is therefore highly heritable. 
Nothing's 100% heritable. So the role for the environment is always there. It's always important. And in most cases, for the things we care about, the role for genes in the environment seem around 50-50. There is no sane person who is talking about genetic differences between human populations who is denying the importance of the environment. And Murray has never claimed that IQ differences between groups is entirely genetic, despite what Klein suggests in his article. That is a false charge. The most controversial thing that Murray and Hernstein wrote in The Bell Curve was that undoubtedly some combination of genes and environment account for IQ differences between individuals and between groups. That went off like a nuclear bomb in 1994. That is an absolutely mainstream opinion now. And the moves that Nisbet and Turkheimer and Hardin make to argue against that opinion are, to my eye, quite obviously specious and clearly motivated, not by scientific parsimony, but by political correctness, which, again, is totally understandable. I share their bias, but I'm not going to lie about what is and isn't a valid scientific argument. So everyone admits that it's a combination of genes and environment for basically everything we care about. And every ethical person wants the environment to be as good as possible for everyone. So whatever the differences are between populations, we can add sex here too. So whatever the differences are between men and women, the politics and the ethics seem totally clear. People have to be treated as individuals. And everyone should be given every opportunity they can use. The political answer is so obvious. And real racists and real misogynists are the people who get those political answers wrong. There are real racists. There are real misogynists and sexists. But data in this area can't be racist or sexist. And honestly, discussing the data isn't a symptom of racism or sexism. The racism and sexism come in how you want to live and how you think people should be treated. So, as I said with Murray, I think any special effort to look for differences among races, given the current political environment, does seem ethically suspect. Why do it? So in that sense, the backlash against Murray and me is somewhat understandable. People are worried about this stuff. I get it. But whether or not we look for racial difference, we will be ambushed by these kinds of data as we study genetics in general, or human performance in general, as we study intelligence in general. This stuff will surprise us. And what we're seeing is immense social pressure to lie about facts, or about what seem to be facts, or about what we have good reason to expect the facts will be. We have very good reason to expect that for many of the traits we care about, intelligence is only one, for many things we care about, if we went looking, we would find different mean values for those traits in different populations. It would be a miracle if all the populations had the same level of mean intelligence, height, weight, conscientiousness, susceptibility to various diseases. Whatever you care about, the average value in a population 
among the Inuit versus the Norwegians versus the Koreans, the means are almost guaranteed to be different for many things we care about. What do we do with that? The people who are convinced that this is a moral emergency are showing themselves willing to destroy other people to prevent honest discussion about the facts that come leaking out whether we're looking for them or not. So unfortunately, the points made against Murray are actually illegitimate, scientifically and ethically. He's accused of making mistakes he did not make, and I'm not going to just sit by and watch a witch burning. And now I get to be the witch. And I must say, once you're the witch, it is very hard to defend yourself from this kind of thing for several reasons. One, you sound defensive, right? You sound like you care too much about your reputation. You sound thin-skinned. And on this topic, as I've said now several times, you sound like you have a dog in this fight. You sound like you're interested in establishing differences among races, which most people will think is a very strange interest to have and ethically suspect for reasons that are understandable. In any case, I'm going to do a podcast with Klein because most of you seem to want it. And above all, I just don't want anyone to be able to say that I avoided valid criticism. But again, the criticism I've received thus far from Klein and Nisbet and Turkheimer and Harden has not been valid. So we'll just see what he brings. And we'll see if he's capable of admitting errors. Again, his own first author is now apologizing for calling it junk science. Klein is still calling it junk science. If the expert opinion he was relying on to judge it to be junk science now says it wasn't junk science and has recanted and apologized, what will Klein do? I will give him every opportunity to be a better version of himself. And I certainly hope that version of him shows up on the podcast. As I said, I was on vacation. I'm now no longer on vacation, as you can hear. And I haven't been paying as much attention to the backlash as a masochist might. And I am going to rethink my relationship to social media here going forward because this didn't need to happen. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been paying attention to social media. I wouldn't have taken a shot at Klein and resurrected this whole thing. I wouldn't have had to deal with the aftermath. It's not good. I gotta tell you, it is not good to be on vacation with your family and glance at Twitter and have the next week more or less torpedoed. I can certainly tell you that if I didn't know how to meditate, life would be much worse. Despite how angry I seemed in that email, meditation absolutely works. It is quite a relief to be able to unplug from this even while it's going on. A helpful reader who I'll leave nameless, who has been paying attention to what's happening on social media, wrote me the following email, which I thought I should react to because it seemed emblematic of many of the things that are being said, though I haven't really seen these things. He writes, Hi, Sam. I've been on Reddit quite a bit since this Ezra Klein maelstrom broke, trying to see what the reaction is from true fans and from those who just want to sow enmity against you. I'm mostly with you on so many issues, and on those that I'm not, I'm ready to defend your integrity. One main criticism that I've seen is that you ever so slightly keep falling to the right in these intellectual tussles. It's this association with Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, 
where you come off cozy with these figures on the right, and then when a blowout like the one with Ezra Klein comes, it seems like you can't have the same warmth of relations and good spirit with a straight-up liberal. And then he goes on to criticize Rubin and Rogan and Peterson as right-wing and, and kind of spells out problems with them as he sees them, and as apparently many people in my subreddit see them. Okay, let me tell you why this totally misses the point. This is why, honestly, it is a mystifying experience that people can't follow the plot here, but apparently it's harder if you're not the witch. I can have disagreements with people and debate these differences honestly. And I, as you know, disagree with Jordan Peterson about many, many things. And I'm sure I will disagree with him about many things at our events this summer. But I'm doing those events with Jordan because I think these disagreements are important and interesting and worth hammering out in front of our mutual audiences. The point here is not disagreement. The point is slanderous misrepresentation. And that, I can honestly say, almost always comes at me from the left. If you want the appropriate analogy here, I can use these guys, or at least I can use Peterson, and I can use Ben Shapiro, who also falls into this bin. So Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro were both on Dave Rubin's show not long ago, and I happened to watch that. And they were both on after I'd done podcasts or events with each of them. And both misrepresented my views quite egregiously. I think Ben did it on the Rubin podcast. He might have done it elsewhere. Actually, he might have done it on Jordan Peterson's podcast. In fact, I think he did. But in any case, I had an event with Ben. We had some dispute about free will and other topics. I made a joke. Someone asked from the audience what you should tell your children about free will. I said lie to them, but I was clearly joking, relying on my audience to understand that I was joking, given the fact that I've taken as strong a position against lying as anyone I can think of. Most of the audience certainly seemed to understand it was a joke. They laughed. Ben apparently didn't. Ben came away thinking that my remedy for the truth about free will was that people should lie to kids about free will. And he started saying that in subsequent interviews. So there's Ben misrepresenting my views. So I reached out to Ben by email, very much the way I reached out to Ezra by email. I said, Ben, you've got me totally wrong. That was a joke. And again, this, this started with an email exchange where I was like, Ben, what the fuck? You got this wrong. What did Ben do? Did Ben go pure Ezra Klein evasion on me? Did he pretend to be clairvoyant, as so many of my leftist critics do? Jank Uger, you know, my three-hour debate with him, where he's pretending to read my mind and tell me and the world what I really meant when I said something? No, he apologized immediately. He said, sorry, I didn't mean to misrepresent you. And as far as I know, he has never done that again. And that was the end of the exchange, right? There was no, it didn't go into this circle of hell where I'm trying to get him to admit that it was a joke. Same with Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson got on Dave Rubin's show and he said, you know, the problem with Sam Harris is he doesn't understand consciousness. He doesn't understand how mysterious consciousness is. He doesn't understand how profound it is and how it's not easily reduced. Something like that. He said, in fact, the opposite of one of my core beliefs. It was as though I had gotten on Rubin's show and said, you know, the problem with Jordan Peterson 
is he doesn't understand the power of myth. He doesn't understand Carl Jung. I don't think he's read Carl Jung. That is the center of the bullseye for Peterson, and that would be me inverting it. Well, the profundity and irreducibility conceptually of consciousness is the center of the bullseye for me, intellectually. And he was getting it wrong. So I wrote to Jordan. You know, Jordan and I had a kind of painful collision on my podcast, certainly the first one. And I said, Jordan, you've got me completely wrong. You're misstating my views. What did Jordan do? Did he give me some rigmarole about how that's not what I really think about consciousness? Or that he didn't really misrepresent me? No. Instantaneous apology. He said, sorry, I guess I have to read your books so I know what I'm talking about when we have our public events. That is a difference that cannot be exaggerated. That is everything. Peterson and Shapiro and I will go on to disagree about many things. It could be very heated. I have no idea how intense some of these conversations could get in the future, but there is a world of difference between bad faith misrepresentations and an honest engagement with a person's ideas. Ezra Klein does not appear to know the difference. I will do my best to show him on this podcast. So anyway, that podcast is coming, and who knows what's going to happen. Okay, live events. This is the other topic here that I want to touch before I get off. I think I'm changing my philosophy around doing live podcasts. Many of you like the live podcast, but many of you don't. And I'm more persuaded by those of you who don't. There are the sound quality issues, obviously, but in most cases, those aren't a deal breaker. The biggest issue is that having these conversations in front of a live audience changes the nature of the conversation. And that's not a problem for the event. It's not a problem for the people who are in the audience. But I'm convinced more and more that it is a problem on the podcast. What happens is I'm sitting with another person having a conversation in front of 2,000 people. And it is totally natural, it's really unavoidable to play to the audience to some degree. I mean, all of the laughs we get and there's nothing insincere about it, it's just the fact that you're sitting in front of thousands of people having a conversation. It's very awkward to pretend they're not there. And it just changes the dialogue. And that doesn't translate very well in audio to the podcast. Many of you are left thinking, what is wrong with this audience? Why are they laughing at that joke that wasn't even a joke? And sometimes it wasn't even a joke. Sometimes it was just a facial expression or a pause that you sort of got what was funny about it if you're sitting there in the audience. But on the podcast, the audience just sounds deranged. There is a fundamental mismatch between the experience in the room and what gets captured on the audio. And many of you have begun to complain that the live podcasts are starting to degrade the quality of this podcast. And that worries me because, as I said, I think there's some truth to it. I, I, many of these events I thought have been quite good, and many of the resulting podcasts I thought have been good enough, but they're never the best of my podcasts, I think most of you will agree. And some are just not all that great. And again, it's more of it being a mismatch between what was true in the room and what gets translated. Now, of course, there are people who see this from the other side. They probably understand that it's different, and the sound certainly isn't as good. You know, you live 
5,000 miles away from where this event was recorded, and you couldn't have gone even if you wanted to, and it's great to get to hear the conversation. I understand that, but I think the best remedy here is to stop releasing audio from my live events, unless something especially compelling gets recorded. And so as a general matter, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to treat the live events as their own thing, and you're either there or you're not. The truth is I'll probably transition away from doing conversations with guests at live events. I think I'll just give a talk and do Q&A and have it be its own thing. And then the podcast will be what you've come to expect on all the other episodes, where I'm actually talking to someone one-on-one as though an audience isn't there, which I agree leads, generally speaking, to better conversations, at least for the purpose of the final result as broadcast on the podcast. Needless to say, I reserve the right to change my mind at any time. But this is my course correction at present, and I have a few recorded events still in the can, which I may yet release, but I'll listen to them. I'm not 100% sure. What else here? Just the briefest of all announcements. I've got this book club event with Antonio Damasio coming up in Los Angeles in May. And finally, there is more merch on the website. If you were hoping for different t-shirt designs, well, there now are some, and there are more designs coming. And again, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the t-shirt business, but many of you persuaded me that it was a good way to support the podcast and actually get something that you desired. And as always, you can subscribe to my website if you want to support this work in an ongoing way. And honestly, it is only due to the fact that many of you do support the podcast that I can wade into these difficult waters to the degree that I do. Because if I had a normal job, if I were a professor at a university, if I were a writer for a magazine, if I had a show on television, or even if the podcast were supported by ads, what has happened in the last week could well have destroyed my livelihood. I think many people in my situation right now would have been fired. And that is the point of the pile-on, you should know. It is really those of you who support the podcast who have inured me to the worst effects of this kind of malicious behavior. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. So, until next time, thank you for listening. If you find the Waking Up Podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. And then there's the Waking Up course, an app built for iOS and Android, which I'll be releasing soon as a subscription service, which supporters of the podcast get for free. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. And again, thank you for your support of the show.
It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.